open, candid, honest clarity. Let's talk to the newsmakers and politicians and influencers, and let's ask them your questions. Let's be clear. Welcome into the Let's Be Clear podcast. Will Hewitt, Chris Canergiani, and Stephanie Metzger. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Governor Mike DeWine Let's Be Clear interview. This one kind of interesting, guys. We were headed down in the glass box like always, but a polar vortex hit. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. We had parking permits on the square. We'd coordinated everything with DeWine's press people so that we could usher him out into the vehicle right around noon, I think. And and then, yeah, it got so – it was Eight degrees, I think, and and we just didn't feel right about dragging the governor out and into a refrigerator truck, basically. So he invites us into the state house. I can't remember exactly what the story was, but there was a desk, and there was a really interesting story behind that desk. It was some specific document that uh, was signed on it. Yeah, I, I'm, Lincoln used the desk. I feel like think, Lincoln yeah. <laughs> was attached somewhere, but it was kind of cool to though to get into the state house and do this interview with him. We did it the exact same way. Except it was not in the truck, and we took questions the same way. Yeah, actually, they can, they couldn't have been more gracious. They they really accommodated us quickly to bring in three cameras. You remember what he said? He was like, "We had a sixty minutes crew in here the other day, and they had fewer cameras," which I thought was funny. Yeah. So for the most part, the questions for Governor Dewine were pretty um, pretty honest, but not too harsh. Um, we didn't get a lot of critical comments of him, which I I kind of wondered. Since, especially since he was the new incoming governor, if there were going to be some people who were kind of going to lash out at him. But for the most part, people were pretty supportive and seemed pretty pleased to have him in the governor's office. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting was a little bit of the contrast, because when we talked to former Governor Kasich, there were some people there who weren't so nice um, in those comments. But then with Governor DeWine coming in, taking over, people were, they seemed a lot more optimistic with him. The contrast, too, is there between Kasich being very short and precise with with his answers and DeWine, I don't want to say long-winded, but he was he, he went into a lot of detail with his. So we only got so many questions in, and I, I really feel like we could have talked all day with him because he had a lot to say about a lot of different things. We hope you enjoy the Let's Be Clear podcast version of the, our sit-down interview with Governor Mike DeWine. Thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Clear. Special guest today is Governor Mike DeWine. You may notice in full transparency one thing missing from this episode of Let's Be Clear, no clear truck. So uh, polar vortex going on outside or, or polar plunge, whatever you want to call it. To the governor's credit, you kept saying, hey, I'm ready, like, bring it down, we'll come out there. I said, I think it may be a little cold, and you uh, graciously opened up the state house. Probably so more comfortable that. here, so that's It great. is a little more comfortable. But uh, premise is still the same. If you're not used to it, uh, we're taking your questions for the governor here. I want to start, though, and just say uh, congratulations, right? Uh, last time I talked to you was when you were just a candidate. Now you are Governor Mike DeWine. And also, congratulations, I understand, what, 24th grandchild a few weeks ago, Ty? Yes, actually two days after the uh, inauguration. Our, our daughter, of course, we had all our kids and every one of our grandchildren except one came to the, to the inauguration. And we kept kidding Alice. We said, you know, just think all the news you'd make, give, give birth right here in the rotunda or something. You know, she didn't like that at all. But uh, two days later, bam, she's having the baby. So, yeah, Where do you guys get together for, uh, for holidays and that big of a table? I mean, does somebody have a room big enough? We, to... Well, we have a room. Actually, the room where I was sworn in at midnight and the actual swearing in in our, in our home. Um, there's a yeah, big, big room. And so, you know, for holidays, we'll have... 40, 50 that was there. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. You know, Fran cooks and uh, the kids bring food in. It's, uh, it's one of the great benefits of 
you know, having a big family. It's a lot of fun. Governor, the, Vicki wants to know, kind of what you just talked about, the birth of your 24th grandchild. What changes to education and health are you proposing so that children that may be in poverty or unhealthy or uneducated are a little better off 5, 10, 15 years from now? Well, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, the premise of her question is absolutely right. You have to look down the road, you know. What we do now with, with a child who's one or two years of age is going to impact where that child is for the next 90 years, 100 years, right. whatever the length of uh, you know, time that child lives. Uh, and so we're going to put a real emphasis, when you see our budget come out in a couple of months, real emphasis on early childhood development. Um, and we're going to do it really in, in two ways. One is what we call the home visiting program. It's a program the state already has. but we're only reaching about 4% of the eligible mothers. And these are mothers who are first-time mothers, sometimes in, in poverty, in difficult circumstances. And the idea is to reach that mom when she is pregnant, before that child is born, and to make sure she's getting the medical care she needs, nutrition she needs, if she has any kind of challenges, if she's doing drugs, you know, try to help her through that. And then after the child is born, for the first few years, those visits continue to help that mom who, let's say, let's take an extreme example, 16-year-old mom maybe doesn't have anybody in their family who is a real mentor who helps them become a mom, um, try to help her so that the ultimate goal is that when that child starts kindergarten, five years of age, they're ready to go. Yeah. And, and I think what uh, sometimes we don't realize is that, and teachers know this because they see it, but we have a lot of kids who come to kindergarten and they're just way, way, way behind. I mean, their vocabulary may be half the vocabulary of another child in class, and yet somehow we expect our teachers, you know, by third grade to have these kids reading at the same level of everybody else, and that's not impossible, but that is tough. So starting early, we want to triple that. So in other words, triple the number of, of families that are getting the benefit of that of that help. I want to ask, because you sure. have a very unique position, being an undergraduate degree in education and then going into, into politics. You actually so, check that out. I don't I, think anybody knows that. A, <laughs> I, did, well, I feel like that gives you a great perspective on what you know is well, maybe ailing schools or some of the hardships that teachers face. One of the questions that people keep talking about right now is with violence in schools and school shootings, do you arm a teacher? You had an undergraduate degree in education and now you're on kind of a different side how would a young Mike DeWine that just graduated well, with a degree, would you want to be armed or no? Where do you stand? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. You know, my, if, you were t if my wife Fran was here, she would tell you that, uh, you know, when we got married, we got married between our second and third year at Miami University. And uh, I was, she said, I, I thought I was marrying a school teacher. I was going to be a teacher. Yeah. Actually, I did student taught. I taught student taught in, in, in Sharonville at Princeton High School uh, for four and a half months. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And then, you know. Took, took, the, took the bad turn down to politics. And, but um, I think school safety is a big issue. Yeah. I, I think, one, we want to make sure that every school, every child has access to someone who understands mental health. And when I've told teachers that, a lot of times they'll say, I absolutely agree. We need to be able to refer a child who has mental health problems or might be have mental health problems or some challenges to somebody. So one of the things that John Houston and I want to do, and you're going to see presented in our budget, um, is money to do that. So I think that's, that's certainly uh, very, very important. What's that have to do with public, with the safety in the school? Well, maybe nothing. Maybe it's identifying a child who ultimately may become suicidal. Yeah. Or, but it also could 
impact. If you look at some of the horrible tragedies that we've seen and you kind of go back in time, what you'll see is that in some of those cases, that child who ended up being the shooter um, gave a lot of indications to, to people that they had mental 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 health problems. Yeah. So identifying that child early is, is very important. Do you think teachers being armed would help that or? Uh, let, let me finish the whole thing, if I, if I just could, because I think it's a, you have to look at this whole list. encompassing okay. You have to, second, uh, schools now have school safety plans. Uh, very important that these school safety plans be kept up to date. Important that mental health people in the community be involved in the, in the, the planning of that plan and that law enforcement. Also very important that schools actually practice that plan, just like we used to practice Fire, fire drills, drills, tornado drills, okay. absolutely, yeah. And so practice, practice in that is very, is very, very important. Look, ideally, to get to your exact question, um, you're better off having a school resource officer who is armed. That is probably the, the, the optimum. It is not cheap, I understand that, but you get, a, you get the added benefit of having a police officer in that school interacting with kids every single day so that kids who maybe have not have a great perception of police officers or sheriff's deputies get to know that person as Sergeant Bill or, or right. whatever, whatever they, they, they call him or call her. So I think that's an added, added benefit. So I think that's the optimum, that's the best way. Um, if a school is going to arm someone in that school, um, we recommend, I say we, when I was Attorney General, we asked the question, and so we took this to uh, a, a group that does training uh, in regard to um, law enforcement officers and asked the question, what courses should a, a teacher have? They came back with about, frankly, about 160 hours. Wow. Um, that would be the optimum if a teacher was, in fact, going, going to be armed. But ultimately, the school district's got to make, make that decision. But I think we can outline clearly things that are the, 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 that are the best way to, to approach it. Okay, I want to get to a couple more questions here. It looks like several people are, are talking about marijuana. So we're, we're medical marijuana now in Ohio. We're kind of just started with that. You look at the neighborhood of North Michigan, they're at recreational. Is that the road you think Ohio's headed toward, or how soon would that happen? Well, we're trying medical marijuana. Uh, my job as governor is to make sure that the bill that was passed by the legislature before I came, became governor, that that rollout of medical marijuana uh, is done in an orderly fashion. Right. And I think, frankly, we ought to see how that works. Uh, we ought to take a good, good look at that, making sure that um, the people who should have it, have it. Um, so that's my first job, making sure it works. As far as your question about recreational marijuana, I think it's a mistake, bluntly. Um, I've seen what happened in Colorado. And I went out to Colorado the last time this recreational issue was actually on the ballot here in Ohio. You remember, it actually yeah. got beat about two to one. But when it was on the ballot, I said, look, I want to go check this out. So I went to Colorado. Here's what you end up with, and I think it would be a mistake. One, the number of underage kids who are using marijuana, those numbers will go up. Why? Because you're changing the culture. When you say to a 14-year-old child, a 14-year-old child hears this, um, you know, you can't use marijuana, but once you're 21, you can use marijuana, and it's okay. Well, what that kid, 14-year-old hears is it's okay. And so you're, you're, you're changing the culture. The incidence of underage kids using it goes up. I think that's not a good thing. Second thing that will happen is 
because you can take marijuana and put it into food and other things, into brownies. What Colorado found is the incidence of little toddlers who got into a brownie or got into a gummy bear that actually had marijuana in it, that went up dramatically, and the emergency room visits of those kids went up. Um, another thing I think we need to keep in mind is we know so much more today than we do in, the, in 1960 or 1970 or even 1980 or 1990. One thing that we know is that there's been trials done that indicate that someone whose brain is still developing, um, that if they use marijuana frequently, that they risk a significant drop, permanent drop in their IQ. Not exactly a great, a, a great thing. So I just, I just look at all the things that happen with recreational marijuana, and I kind of scratch my head, and I say, why, why would we want to do that? It's a little messy right now just with medical marijuana, right? Because uh, you have, like, the federal law, and then you have the state law you that you're trying to kind you of do. intermix you and do. figure out no, what and, supersedes and, and the, the other. And the other thing you have that becomes difficult, and as more and more people have medical marijuana, um, is how do employ employers deal with that? Let's say someone is using medical marijuana, and they do drug testing, and they find the marijuana in the system, and it could have been from several days right. ago when they used that. So this is these are challenges. Well, what about that, uh, what the, about like a CCW uh, or, con or concealed carry? There's kind of a, some gray area there where technically with marijuana you shouldn't have one, right. but in the state where I mean, can you can you have both a medical well, marijuana these, card these, and a CCW? These, these are these are some of the problems I think that you're, you're going to see. But look. That's the law in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, we're going to enforce the law. We're going to roll this out. And for those people who want to really kind of, who are really anxious and say, now we got this, now we need to go to recreational, I just say, oh, just hold on. Let's see how this works with medical. I, I don't think we should move beyond medical. I think we should work to look to see how medical is actually working. Uh, and what, what we know, for example, uh, is that medical marijuana, marijuana use can be beneficial for a child, for example, who has a lot of seizures. And so what they found in Colorado, when I went to the children's hospital out there, I talked to a doctor who does this research, and she said, look, in some cases it can reduce the number of seizures, in some cases it doesn't help at all, and in other cases it makes it worse. So because of the law restrictions, there has not been a lot of research done in yeah. regard to marijuana. I think you're going to see more research done. And, and the viewers who are watching this or listening to this shouldn't think that, you know, these kids are getting high. That's not the idea. They're, but there are properties, there are properties in marijuana that might be beneficial that are not the THC that call the, that cause the hallucinations. If legislature passed recreational, though, you, would you sign that? Or? No. No, I think it's a mistake. Uh, I just don't think that this is helpful for the state of Ohio. Okay. Somebody wants to know, government shutdown right now. People are, are basically fighting over a border wall. What, what's your opinion of the border wall? I mean, that's kind of the holdup right now. Well, we have to have our laws enforced, and we have to be able to have security at the border. Where I see it, and where I saw it as attorney general, is in the drug problem. Um, you know. Most of the drugs that we see that are a problem in the state of Ohio are coming out of Mexico. Uh, they're brought in by the Mexican cartels. Um, and so that's where I see the, the problem at the, at the border. And, you know, it, can, it probably takes a holistic approach. We need to do a better job. Wall may be, certainly may be part of that. Intel, 
other things coming together um, need, need to be used better, frankly. But uh, the reality is, no matter what you do, uh, there's going to be some drugs get through. And uh, our, our job is to stop those drugs in Ohio. Our job also, though, is to deal with the demand side. Yeah. This is not just a supply problem. It is a supply problem, but it's also a demand problem. And so that's where education uh, is so very, very important. It's not just education about opioids, which are the problem today. But I started my career as a county prosecutor, and that's a long time ago. Yeah. And what I've seen is the evolution of the drug problem. And so... I can't tell you in 10 years if this is going to be a huge opiate problem, but I'll tell you there'll still be a drug problem, and it'll be morphed into some drug. It may be meth. It may be something else. So the point is you've got to prepare kids and to deal with addiction and to try to avoid addiction, and you do that with what the educators call social-emotional learning. You have to start in kindergarten. You've got to do it K through 12. You've got every child. Our goal is every child, every year, something that's age-appropriate and something that's been proven to work. And yeah. so we are working to get that into our schools by next August when kids start back in school. But, and, it's, and some schools already have it, but many times what we find is they'll do something in fifth grade and seventh grade, but it's not a consistent pattern K through 12. And our point, my point is that the data clearly shows that if you want to have an impact, a big impact, you got to do it every year. It's like everything else. So just to cl to clear up, yeah. you are for a wall, but you think that that is just part of. I think it's part. Look, it's part of the. It's part of the, the solution about keeping drugs from coming into the country. Right. And it's certainly, but it, but that keeping drugs from coming in is not the total picture. The rest of it is if we didn't have people, if we didn't have a demand for drugs, they wouldn't be coming in. So you got you got you got to deal with both, and you also have to deal with people, who need treatment. And so we've got to have a better system where particularly when someone has a problem, you got someone in your family, I've got someone, let's say we have someone in our family or someone we know, you know, one of the things the legislature is going to be looking at uh, is can you involuntarily get, get that person into a, a treatment program. But then the question is, you got to have the availability of those programs. And so that's one of the things that we are working on now to make sure there is the availability of a place where that person can get diagnosed and kind of a, a stop, 72-hour right. stop, where you kind of figure out where this person needs to go. I, I, we got just a few minutes left, so I want to get to one that people were asking about this, and you kind of led us there. Right now, Ohio is going to be in the national scope here in September for this opioid crisis. It's something you know, you know you've been kind of spearheading here in Ohio as the attorney general, now as the governor. Lawsuit right now against pharmaceutical companies. What are you hoping to get out of that? And if, if, if you win and you get this big yeah. pile of money, what do you do with it? Yeah, and, and I am under some restrictions right. by the right. courts about what I should say or can say. So I don't want to cross that bridge. Absolutely. But what we hope to accomplish, without talking about negotiations or anything that's going on, and I'm no longer the attorney general, so David Yost is, and so he's dealing with that now. But when we filed it, our, our big picture goal was to get some help from the drug companies who we believe the evidence shows help get people addicted. We want some help from them to deal with people who are addicted now, to get them help. Uh, to help pay for education with, with prevention, and also to help us in, in the regard to law enforcement. So we need the resources 
we think they started the problem, or at least played a major role in getting the problem started, they need to be part of the solution. That's our goal. Okay, uh, I think we got time for one more. It looks like some people are wanting to know about the Lordstown plant, the GM facility that closed down around Youngstown in, in Lordstown. And I think you've been on the record kind of saying, hey, if you're not going to use it, give it to somebody that will. Where does that thing stand right now? Well, it's a pretty good summary, actually. <laughs> That's uh, my job, right? It's a pretty good summary. You summarize. I'm, I talk too long sometimes. <laughs> but on day three, when I became governor of the state, uh, my lieutenant governor and I, John Houston, and I went to Detroit for the Detroit Auto Show. That gave us the opportunity to talk to the hit, top people at Ford, top, top people at, at different auto park companies as well. We also talked to the CEO of General Motors and our message to her was exactly what you said. We prefer you to put a product, as they call it, another line back into Lordstown. It's a great facility. We have great workers. If you can't do that or if you're not willing to do that, let's open this thing up. Let's get somebody else in there. And so I came away with certainly no commitment that they're going to put their own product in there. But I have an understanding uh, that they're working hard to try to get somebody else in there. And so my, what, the way I left the discussion is, number one, we will help you if you're going to put another line in there. State will help. Um, but if that's not going to happen, we will also help any other auto company that wants to go in there and we will help get them in there so that they can start back employing the people in the Mahoning Valley. For every one of those manufacturing jobs, they're supporting a whole bunch of other jobs. Absolutely. You know, it's not just the money that goes to that family, but, you know, all the products they buy in, in the community. So when you take, uh, take Lordstown down, that's a huge uh, blow to the Mahoning Valley. So we, we got to do everything that we can to help some company come in there and employ those workers. Put those workers back to work. Governor, thank you so much for being a part of Let's went, Be Clear. Went too fast. It was yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. We'll come back and do it again. We'll do it again. We That'd thank you good. for your questions and we thank you again for being a part of Let's Be Clear. One thing that really struck me when we were talking to Governor DeWine, I thought, was that he is unflappable. He just rolls with really everything. He, he didn't seem surprised by any of your questions. He was happy to answer them. Um, I felt like we could have continued even longer. And uh, positively, they're willing to talk to us again. So I think, you know, in the next couple of weeks or months, if we are able to, we'll have him actually in the truck this time. And he can do it again. And uh, just the way politics goes, there were certainly topics that we brought up when we did this interview that are still relevant. But now lots of other things have come up that we could talk to him about, which would be fun. Yeah, I, I think it would be great to to have a kind of an ongoing chat with him in this manner because again, it's about bringing people to people that they don't normally get access to. Even if it's something small as, hey, I, what about this for the state? And I think it's kind of cool that people got that chance with the governor for this. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to see what some questions would be now that he's been in office for a few months. We just Ohio just had the that abortion law passed, so I'd be interested to see what some of the newer perspectives would be and some of the newer questions would be for him. Well, we're just still a little early for a national political campaign. And I'll be curious to see, you know, Ohio is such a factor in all of that, um, how how it lines up coming coming with the election.
Well, we thank you for listening to the Let's Be Clear podcast with Governor Mike DeWine. The next one to drop will be with a couple of brothers who are in the grocery business. The Heinen brothers talk about the future of grocery shopping in the next episode. 